When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do we create a world where we care for the environment? We take a genuine interest in caring for our environment, you know, and caring for each other. So it's a caring psychology, it's not a socialist psychology. It's, not a, it's a caring psychology. How do we create caring? Because when we create caring, we orientate our brains in a certain kind of way. We stimulate certain patterns within the body, the vagus nerve, the frontal cortex. When we create a caring orientation, we get certain kind of relationships with each other. When we create a caring orientation, we actually are able to deal with conflicts in a different way. You're listening to Dr. Paul Gilbert on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. On this podcast, we've had a number of interviews about compassion-focused therapy and the concept of compassion. And today, it's a real delight to have really the father of compassion-focused therapy on the show, Paul Gilbert. Debbie, I know you got a chance to listen to our conversation today and what struck you from it. Well, Diana, it was I think it was so cool that you were able to do this because I know you've been really influenced by this line of work on compassion and by Paul Gilbert. And I think what struck me the most is that I've often found that that people who have had many years and decades of major contribution to our field, you know, people who are leaders really within psychology, often as they get more toward the end of their career, they just come from this place of amazing wisdom where they're tying things together just outside of their sort of conventional field, and they take what they've been working on often and will apply it to these bigger problems of humanity. So to me, what I actually really loved hearing him talk about was some of what we face as humans in today's complicated world, and just hearing someone who has such deep wisdom and compassion talking about these kind of issues, I thought that was just really amazing. Yes, you can really hear the heart of Paul Gilbert, as well as the genius mind of his ability to really integrate many different components of psychology. So everything from attachment theory to evolutionary psychology, to social psychology, to biology, to uh, archetypes from Jungian psychology into a model that really makes sense and a model that could be beneficial to us as a species as we're facing so many challenges on our planet, both um, environmentally, but also socially. So we hope that 
you take some of the messages of Paul Gilbert and apply them in your own life. And it was just a real honor to have him on. Paul Gilbert is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Derby, an honorary visiting professor at the University of Queensland. Until his retirement from the NHS in 2016, he was consultant clinical psychologist for over 40 years. He has researched evolutionary approaches to psychopathology with a special focus on mood, shame, and self-criticism in various mental health difficulties for which compassion-focused therapy was developed. He was made a fellow of the British Psychological Society in 1993, president of the BABCP from 2002 to 2004, and was member of the first British government's NICE guidelines for depression. He has written and edited 21 books and over 250 papers and book chapters. So if you think that compassion reduces your drive, Paul Gilbert's an example of that's the opposite, not the case. Uh, In 2006, he established the Compassionate Mind Foundation as an international charity with the mission statement to promote well-being through the scientific understanding and application of compassion. You can find them at compassionatemind.co.uk. And there are now a number of sister foundations in other countries. He was awarded the Order of the British Empire by the Queen in March 2011 for services to mental health, and he established and is director of the Center for Compassion Research and Training at Derby University, UK. And his most recent book that we're hoping to talk talk about and dive into today is Living Like Crazy. It talks about the social dynamics of uh, our our minds and how it drives us all to be a little bit mess. So it's an honor and thrill to have you on the show. Thank you for being here, Dr. Gilbert. Diane, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted. So let's start with Living Like Crazy. You've taken these years of research on evolution science and compassion that you've learned from the individual level and applied it more globally into our social mentalities as a species. Can you describe some of the main points from living like crazy? Okay. So one of the main points is that we have to come to terms that we are an evolved species, right? Here we are. Uh, and uh, we never, none of us chose to be here. I didn't choose to be a man. You didn't choose to be a woman. We didn't choose to be Americans or English. So much of what we are, we just arrived here, you know. And um, we often make the, say the story that if I'd been kidnapped as a three-day-old baby into a violent drug gang, this version of Paul Gilbert wouldn't exist, a much more violent version. And if this version could meet that violent version, they probably wouldn't like each other. So this whole idea really that we've got to come to terms with is that we are biological beings that are here for, what, 20,000 days, 30,000 days. We are all choreographed by our genes and our environment, right? And we have to learn how to pay attention to what's going on in our minds because the way in which our minds are created it makes it possible for us to be incredibly harmful. And, uh, and humans have been very harmful. So that's the first thing. We're biologically created. It's not our fault at all. But we, if we can become mindful and compassionate, we can take control over this crazy brain. If we create environments that we've got, then we will behave like crazy. We are, we are crazy. I mean, we do crazy things. I mean, it's just horrible things we do to each other. So the second thing then is, so what are these? Um, so the, there are chapters that, on things like cruelty and religion and that sort of thing. So the second thing is, so how are we going to then orientate the mind, given that the mind is full up all these potentials to do harmful things, 
how can we create a mind that actually does helpful things? So then the book explores how that can occur through the development of compassion and empathy and the motivation not to blame. The key thing is not to blame ourselves or other people because basically we're all acting out these programs in the mind. And there's a wonderful um, uh, series that is a bit violent. It's called uh, uh, West, um, uh, what's it called? West, is it Westland? I don't think it's Westland. Anyway, it's about a series about robots and things where they're all getting their programming from, uh, from these programmers and they become you know, quite different um, robots according to their programs. But we're all like that a little bit, right? So the idea is then if we hone in on compassion and if we hone in on mindfulness, this gives us an opportunity to be more aware of what's going on in our minds, to be more sensitive to the things arising in our minds and making decisions to be helpful, not harmful. And if you do that, then you will be training your body in a particular kind of way, which will feel a lot better and you'll be a much better agent in the world. So those are the key messages within living like crazy. We are living like crazy because we've created a world that brings out the worst in us, not the best in us. That's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. Okay, so it's not our fault that the world is, you know, the ice caps are melting, but all of us have responsibility to try to do what we can to get governments to do what they can. So this issue of taking responsibility, even if it's not your fault, it doesn't matter, how can we take responsibility? How can we take responsibility for creating the world that we want? Well, first of all, we need to understand the psychology we're trying to create. And that I think that's becoming clear. We don't want to create this competitive psychology because that will get us into the mess we've got into. We need to create a cooperative, compassionate psychology. I mean, competition will occur. That's, you're not going to stop it. But it needs to be a, a compassionate, cooperative form where there are rules and regulations and, and so on and so on. So um, that's the basic story of living like crazy, how not to live like crazy and why we do and why we are at the moment. And if we don't stop it, we will have a lot of trouble. <laughs> so what brought you to this work? You have an interesting history in that you grew up in West Africa. Your undergraduate major is in economics, and now you're working in this area of compassion. Ah, well, I'd always been interested in uh psychology but when i but in the 60s psychology was not regarded as a good option for a degree and uh i was quite good at economics so i said no you make a lot of mo more money if you go and do an economics you know study economics and go into business which is what i did so i studied economics but my heart was really always in psychology and trying to understand the nature of mind economics was good for me though because in economics you built these models so in the first year you had simple models and more complicated models until you had models about how world economies work when I came into psychology, it was totally different. You had a little course here on language, a little course there on animal learning, a little course there on cultural psychology. Nothing was connected. There was no models, really, about how does the whole thing work and how does it work in context, you see. So that was very puzzling. So I always had that view about how do we build models of interactions between different processes and so on. So that was one of the aspects. And then um, <clears throat> I had a lot of interest in Jungian stuff, the concept of archetypes. And in those days, you know, all into the, you know, the archetypal stories. And, that. Uh, and then, of course, I trained as a, as a psychologist and then went on to Edinburgh and did a PhD studying depression and did clinical work. And what led you to compassion in your clinical research? From the clinical point of view, I was always interested in the evolutionary dynamic because we, I worked on a specialist depression unit and one of the 
questions that was posed on this unit in Edinburgh was, you know, it's very depression is very common. Why would the human brain be capable of such misery? You know, it's it's maladaptive, or at least appears to be very maladaptive. So how come we still so vulnerable to these conditions like a depressed mind? And that was then started an evolutionary journey about depression is linked to experiences of defeat and entrapment and helplessness and so on. So that was that aspect. So then obviously moving into therapy, one of the big therapies at the time developing was cognitive therapy. So that's what we were doing. And then during the 80s, we were doing quite a lot of cognitive therapy, uh, developing cognitive therapy with severe depressions. And the, the way we came to compassion uh, was that working with some of these clients, they would say, yes, I can, I can generate alternative thoughts. I can realize that I'm, <clears throat> you know, I feel like a failure and I feel I'm worthless. But on the other hand, I can see that I've achieved this and I've got a job and I've held down a job and I have friends, whatever it is. But it doesn't really uh, make a lot of difference. I mean, I can see the logic of it, but I can't feel any different. And that was a that was all, that was one of the big kind of issues within CBT about the distinction between feeling and uh, belief uh, thinking. You know. So that's how it we began. We began by identifying the emotional textures of the thoughts, not the content of the thought, the emotional textures of the thought, the ability for somebody to have a genuine compassionate motivation behind the thinking, generating these alternatives, and a genuine compassionate feeling. And it turned out. They wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They said, no, 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 no. I, I'm not doing this kindness stuff. I'm not doing any of that. No, no. So we run into lots and lots of blocks and resistances. And as you know, that part of the therapy now is helping people to work through quite significant blocks, barriers, and resistances to compassion. Because once people start to do it, they get the benefit. But there's a, a lot of resistances when we first start. So ACT and CFT have a lot of overlap, and in particular in the way that we approach thoughts, that it's less about the content and arguing with the content of a thought like you would do in traditional cognitive therapy, and more about attending to process. It makes me think about in working with uh, clients with eating disorders, I could sit there all day long trying to convince a woman with an eating disorder that she's too thin. And she may even be able to say and agree with that and see, yes, my numbers are too low. But then we'll say in the same sentence, and at the same time, I really have the strong desire to, to lose weight because my critic is so loud in there and so forceful. And what CFT offers is a different way of approaching those thoughts and maybe even changing the tone internally and just changing some of that tone and some of the felt sense in our bodies changes our systems and also we can change the way that we then act uh, more compassionately and which relates to the flow of compassion of sending compassion out as well as receiving compassion in. A concept that I've found really helpful in my clinical practice is the concept of the looping brain and how our old brain interacts with our newer brain and gets caught in these unhelpful loops. And that causes us a lot of problems. And it's all of us. It's not just people with mental health problems, but every human struggles with this. Can you talk a little bit about our old brain, new brain and the loops it can get caught in? Yeah, so this is a great question. So look, the, the human brain is part of the 
flow of life, right? We are a species along with many, many other species. We're all part of the same journey. And uh, all species have to do two things, survive one, and then reproduce. If, <laughs> if either of those ones don't work out, I mean, that's the end of the game, isn't it, really? So you can survive, but you don't reproduce. And of course, if you don't survive, then, then you don't reproduce either, too. So um, these give rise to what we call uh, biopsychosocial goals or um, life tasks. So first of all, you have to be able to spot dangers and take defensive action. So you're going to need a system which will allow you to do that. And that's your threat system. And that comes with ready-made action tendencies of fight and flight. But then you have to also do other things like you have to go and find food. That's so you have a mechanisms to help you find food and be motivated to do that. But you also have a lot of social uh, motives. And these social motives include, for example, sexuality, finding the sexual partner, uh, dealing with issues of competition within a group, status, finding you know, your position, so not getting whacked by the dominant, um, not getting into fights with dominant individuals, forming relationships, uh, joining groups, so there's a number of social motivational systems which are fundamental to many, many mammals. Uh, and, of course, attachment is a big one for looking after the offspring. So they're all there, and they're running pretty good for most mammals. But then along comes uh, the <laughs> ancestors who start to get smart, and they start to uh, develop a whole range of cognitive competencies which other animals don't have. And, and this is a certain type of consciousness conscious awareness of being knowing what we call knowing awareness that's crucial for mindfulness for example an ability to reason an ability to think about oneself ability to think about the consequences we have on others and so on and so on so there's an amazing array of these fantastic cognitive competencies so we can think about if i do this today this will affect tomorrow and maybe a week later as far as we know animals don't do that um, so they can't think in terms of time. You know, we have we can we can do this time projecting. Mm -hmm. for, uh, so, so many many of these amazing things we can self monitor in a way that no other animal can. Mm -hmm. You you'll never see a chimpanzee taking their pulse sitting under a tree worrying about a heart attack. You know, whereas we can. So we can monitor. We can judge what we're monitoring, and uh, we can predict the outcome of what we're monitoring. So this is really really important. Now, the problem with it is, it, as you say, it creates loops. So we can take the stimulus, what we say, take the stimulus inside the head. So for example, this is pretty easy to demonstrate. Supposing that you are very hungry and you see a wonderful meal, that is biologically set up to stimulate your saliva and stomach acids. But equally, you could just fantasize a meal and that fantasy, that image will stimulate the same pathway. So the brain doesn't make a distinction between you're generating an image on purpose because you're just imagining or whatever. You think sexuality is another fun thing to do. You see something sexy, it'll stimulate your pituitary, cascade of hormones goes through your body and so on. But equally, you could just have a fantasy that you deliberately create and you can stimulate those brain pathways yourself. So that's great. So that's very clear, right? That's phenomenally important that what you create in your mind, what you imagine, will stimulate these basic physiological systems. The problem is, if somebody is being critical to you and harsh to you and giving you downrank threats, that defense system will then be activated so that you'll be then feel submissive or low rank or worthless or inferior because that's your defensive, that's the defensive position, right? But you can also do it for yourself because we just 
explain that. So you can just imagine yourself to be useless and no good, and you're going to be stimulating the same physiological systems. So in fact, we've done studies on putting people in fMRI studies, and we've shown that when people are self-critical, they stimulate their threat system very clearly. So the point is you can put yourself into loops by what you think and what you imagine. So we have a capacity to use our new brain to constantly stimulate things like our threat systems or a sense of failure or whatever it is. And that then traps us in these loops, which physiologically drives deeper and deeper into anxiety or, or depression. So we have an old brain that houses our emotional system, things like anger and anxiety and joy. And then we also have a newer brain that has the capacity to think and reason and create memories. And these two brains interact with each other and can feed back on one another and create looping patterns as we've been talking about. I think what's interesting is that this is not only at the individual level has, you know, consequences, uh, but also at the societal level. Can you talk a little bit about how the interactions between old brain, new brain impact things like um, in groups and out groups uh, and competition within our species? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because, see, humans evolved primarily in hunter-gatherer societies of relatively few, 100, maybe 150 people, maybe less, and you mostly know everybody from the day you were born to the day you, you passed away, right? And in those environments, we know that caring and sharing is very, very important, and uh, competing was not so important, right, because that really didn't help you particularly. What was very important was the relationships you had with other people in the group because they would help you and support you when you needed them to. With the agriculture came the expansion of group size, and with the expansion of group size came hierarchies, and those hierarchies primarily were taken over by aggressive males. So aggressive males started to take over these hierarchies. So if you look at most civilizations, many of them have been driven by aggressive male leaders, you know, the Romans, the Vikings, the Syrians, Egyptians, you know, all of them. And that creates, um, within those environments, that creates a much more ranked system. So now, since agriculture, we live in these highly ranked systems where some individuals are doing really well and they have power and other individuals are not doing so well and they don't have power. So there is a big competitive dynamic within large groups which produces this recognition of, of competition. Now, up until not so long ago, um, religion helped us to the degree that it said God had chosen whether you were going to be a king or a pauper, so it wasn't your fault. But with capitalism, of course, it is your report. See, if you're, not, if you're not happy, if you're not good, if you're not making loads of money, if you're not beautiful, if you're not this, if you're not that, there's only one person you can blame, and that's you. So what capitalist society does, this competitive society, is it focuses in on the individual. So they start striving and comparing, striving and comparing. We know now, because there's quite a lot of data on this, Harvard done a wonderful study with children, that over the last 20 years, kids... Uh, and adolescents have become very competitive, very aware of their position in relationship to other people, very vulnerable to a sense of feeling inferior compared mm -hmm. to other people, worried about their Facebook presentations, social media presentations, you know, on and on it goes, really. So we're living in this really highly competitive motivational environment, which is really just very bad for us because that's not basically what we evolved to operate within. Right. And that's where consumerism and selling and marketing to people just 
drives, you know, it's a petri dish for that. And I think what I think about when you talk about humans being evolved in these, in these small groups of 50 to 150, that's where we do well. Now we're in these groups of thousands on our Facebook pages, on our uh, forums, online forums, and you start to see fracturing within these groups, even if they're groups that have a common goal, which is interesting, right? And can you talk a little bit about that, why that's happening? No, that's a brilliant point. That's absolutely brilliant point. So you're not now competing with, you know, somebody in your local group. You're now competing with somebody who's thousands of miles away. Yeah. You know, millions and millions of people are potentially more attractive than you or, you know, brighter than you or they've got, you know, better lifestyles than you. You know, everything's better than you've got, right? So that's really quite an important point that you're saying. And there's this fracturing, fracturing, fracturing. And it also produces quite a lot of anger. The other thing of our society, which is quite a serious problem, which is that it's an immediate gratification. You look at food. A couple of hundred years ago, if you wanted to cook, if you want to eat something, you'd have to go and get the vegetables and cook. You probably might have to grow the vegetables even. Uh, and you'd have to make, make it, right? You don't do that anymore. You can just go to the shop and get it immediately. You can immediately satisfy whatever needs you want to satisfy. And that is biologically very new. That's mm-hmm. very new. But people have instant gratifications. They don't actually have to work to, to eat or whatever it is. So the, all of these things together really are creating environments that are not particularly conducive to well-being. They're conducive to frustration, to competitiveness, feeling I'm missing out, I'm inferior, I should be better than this, I could be better than that. Mm-hmm. And that causes these fractures. So people, rather than people working to form co- cooperative and compassionate connections with each other, they're all inwardly focusing on how they can have their gratifications and how they can you know, compete in, in the market of, of this theater of life that's going on at the moment. One of the concepts that you talked about uh, in the Compassionate Mind Training uh, was the difference between safeness and safety. And you have this imagery of a man on a porch with his guns. Can you talk a little bit about that concept of safeness versus safety and maybe also how it relates to um, leaders and, and traps that they get caught in? Yeah, so this is really important. So um, safety is the prevention of harm, right? So you put your seatbelt on when you're driving, or we often say, you know, if you're going to climb a mountain, make sure you've got your safety gear, you've got your ropes, you've got your mobile phones, you've got everything. So these are all very, very important things, right? But if that's all that you do, so when you start to climb, the only thing you're thinking about is, are my ropes okay? You can't actually trust your safety behaviors. You can't then move into a position where you feel safe. Now that I feel I can trust my safety behaviors, now I feel safe. Now I can enjoy the climb and I can you know, enjoy the smell of the air and the wonder of the being in the mountains and the snow. It's fantastic and because I'm trusting my safety behaviors, right? What you have in a lot of uh, people who have psychological difficulties, they don't trust their safety behaviors. They're constantly looking out for threats or worries. How does that respond? How does that relate to politics? Well, the relates to politics because people are finding the world a fast-moving world because communities are breaking down, jobs are mo- d- disappearing. After the war between 1945 and 1965, 
there was a whole movement to create a better better world, have better employment, better education, better health, health for all. And that's gradually being fragmented. So the sense of being safe in the world, you know, there is a health service for me. There, you know, I will be able to get a job. My kids will be okay. That sense that I can trust the environment, that's gone. Okay, so we don't can't trust the environment as much as we used to be able to because right-wing politics are basically being eating away at that sort of social fabric. Um, and the next thing, of course, is that, well, who can we blame then? Okay, well, we won't blame right-wing governments. What we'll do is we'll blame immigrants. Ah, yes, it was from the immigrants. So now we have a tribal threat, okay? So it's them against us. And what right-wing politicians do is they're very good at stimulating two things. Firstly, we will protect you from the threats of living, you know, like jobs or security. We're going to protect you from that. And secondly, we're going to make you great. America is going to be great again. England, Great Britain. I mean, who wants to be Great Britain? God only knows. Um, so all of this stuff, right, is being channeled through threat processing. Yeah. Because people are frightened because they, it, the, the social fabric has gradually been eaten away over the last 20, 30 years. You know, and people, jobs are disappearing. I mean, and the, the future is serious because we've got artificial intelligence coming what are people going to do uh, certainly we don't want them going back down the coal mines or the oil industry or whatever so right-wing folk unfortunately are highly focused on threat processing defending their rights defending their rights to make as much money as they possibly can and so on and so on and um, it's actually quite a serious problem for the world at the moment about how do we deal with this right-wing appeal to people's fears because there are people are frightened so they're in terms of safety behaviors that that's what they're appealing to whereas the left wing are trying to get people to have a sense of feeling safe that they can then begin to move off and take opportunities and so on and so on so there's a slight difference there but um so you know. safe, safety is the seeking of, you know, going out to try and make yourself feel safe. The man on the porch with the guns. The protection, is, yeah. Is, protecting yeah, is trying to be protected, but he doesn't feel safe inside his body. No. His body is actually quite dysregulated while he's sitting on the porch with his guns. Yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. a sense of safeness is activating that compassionate, soothing system in your body and mind where you feel yeah. content and safe, like the dog that's maybe on the porch with him lying in the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's very interesting because if you think about, you know, if you think about attachment system, right? So the child doesn't need to look after themselves because they they can trust the parent to look after them, right? So this is very, very important within uh, within cultures. Can we trust the people around us to care for us? Can we trust our politicians to create a caring environment? Yeah. Well, certainly in Britain anyway, that's been gradually undermined with the concept of the nanny state and people should stand on their own two feet. Mm. It sounds simple. It sounds sensible, but actually, psychologically, it's it's very bad news because uh, people people do need to have a sense that they can feel safe in their environments. And we know that you know, if you look at the media, right? You look at our televisions. The televisions are all becoming increasingly focused on aggression, mm. uh, male violence, basically. Male vengeful violence is one of the most common themes in television entertainment now, where the good guys come in you know the bad guys do the terrible things they throw the babies off the cliff and then the bad guys come good guys come in and they do do all the vengeance stuff mm -hmm. we've got a serious problem in our society 
there's a lot of anger there's a lot of fear there's a lot of this fear of the bad guy and we need to be vengeful if you look at a lot of the things like the avengers and all, all these movies we need special power special power what is going on in our unconscious what is really happening that this is our entertainment because underneath we're frightened we're frightened we haven't got any power nobody's going to protect us nobody's going to help us right. and so all these movies they speak to this desire to have these protectors who will come in and help us because basically underneath it all we just feel very scared about how life is going how fast it's going are we going to be part of it not part of it you know Your work not only integrates attachment and evolutionary psychology, but also the concept of archetypes from Jungian psychology. And Jungian psychology and archetypes was something that I never learned about in graduate school. As a cognitive behaviorally trained therapist, we focused more on behavioral interventions and evidence-based approaches. But at the same time, I really have valued your discussion of archetypes, and I see it so useful in our understanding of human behavior. Can you talk a little bit about archetypes? Freud was interested in drives, the drives particularly of sexuality and aggression, whereas Jung was interested more in what he called the meaning-making, species-based meaning-making, right? So, for example, attachment. Infants form attachments to their parents right that's uh, biologically set up to do that that's an archetype mm. so the desire to go out and struggle in the world and find your place and you know you find your partner and form your career that would be called the hero archetype the desire to go out and and the, face the challenges of life right the desire to present yourself in your best possible light so people like you Okay, that's called the persona, that we all have a desire not to show our deepest secrets, darkest secrets, but we all show a version of ourselves that we think other people will like. And we things that we're ashamed about, we keep hidden in the shadows, right? So archetypes are basically these fundamental human patterns that are biologically there within you. You don't create them, but that they grow and they develop according to the culture in which you work, live in, right? So uh, heroes can take different um, textures. And um, so Star Wars, for example, is the story of the hero against the father and all that. So archetypes really are the textures, they're the colors. There's no colors in beliefs, are there really? Beliefs are just beliefs, but they're not my argument. And I knew Tim Beck quite well, and Tim was quite happy with this because he was quite interested in evolutionary stuff. So it's how these things are rooted into underlying motivational systems. Mm. Now, today, we probably talk more about motivational systems for status or sex or avoidance of um, threats or whatever it is. But basically, Jung was using the concept of repeating patterns through history and through cultures. You know, the, the, the story of um, deceit, the story of loyalty, the story of, you know, sexuality, all that stuff. So that was Jung's idea that we're all scripted. We come into the world ready to play these parts. Mm. And uh, that just seems to be true to me. I mean, we can discuss the issues of what, what motivations, uh, you know, what are the motivations to belong or to have attachments or sexuality or status. We can argue what they are we can call them different things but basically we are biologically set up to want to achieve certain things and we get unhappy if they're thwarted and then how do we cultivate 
saveness within that? So the, the, one of the most important things and with all of those things is to be aware that they also represent needs. So, for example, I think we've, we've all, we're all agreed now, I hope we are, um, that children need to be cared for in a particular kind of way in order to mature their, most productively, if you like. So their, their frontal cortex, their immune system, everything about them matures much better in conditions where they feel loved and cared for and people take an interest in them than in conditions where they are abused or neglected or threatened or whatever. So we're clear that children have these basic needs Okay, so that's really important. So the first thing then is recognizing in order for us to have a sense of safeness, right, we need to uh, have our needs met. Think of another one, status, right? All of us have to have to have some sense of status and being valued by others. If everybody you saw yesterday, if everybody you saw tomorrow uh, started to treat you like an inferior and said, yes, thank you, Diane, but we can't be bothered with you because, you, you know, you're inferior, um, you'd sooner or later be pretty upset. So, but you need to feel valued and, and that what you're doing, you're making contributions and quite rightly so, because you are, you're doing brilliant. So we have those needs. So how do we feel safe? We have to feel safe when we begin to understand what our basic needs are. And then we have people around us who will help us meet those needs. If they're thwarted all the time, if you don't get any status, if nobody really loves you or cares about you, nobody supports you, nobody helps you, people are always horrible to you, I'm afraid it's, it's going to be very difficult uh, to feel safe in the world. I mean, of course, if you're a psychopath, you might, but generally speaking, the way we feel safe is we help each other to feel safe. Mm. So safeness is created in our relationships, in the ways in which your partner relates to you. You feel safe with your partner and you can talk to them because about things that you're upset about or worried about because you feel safe with them because you between you have created that connection. See, So safeness is created through our relationships with each other. And then within our own heads, we create safeness by having a caring orientation to what's going on inside our minds rather than a hostile, critical one. So we create safeness through caring. So how do you map that onto a bigger picture of society? How do we cultivate safeness as a country or as a world, given that? Well, I think part of the issue is we, we, need, to re, we need to revisit what was happening in the immediate post-war period, right? And I think there's been quite a lot written on this from historical points of view, where there was a genuine, both in America and the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Deal, and and certainly in Britain, where we'd been devastated by war. We wanted to create a better world. We wanted to create a better world. And we had the politicians that were going to try and do that. Taxes were quite high, but everybody was agreed with this agenda. Okay, so one of the things politically then is we need a movement now. And it's not about left and right wing politics anymore. It's about how are we going to create a world that we actually want to live in? Because if we live it to capitalist, unregulated markets, we will not have a world that we want to live in. We will have a Blade Runner world where our ecological disasters get worse and worse and worse. The have-nots become have-lots, and the other and the others are just left to kind of go by the wayside. So it's kind of clear this is already happening. So the the key thing is how can we create movements? And this is what the mind is interested in where people begin to think about, uh, it's not about left or right, it's about how do we create a world 
where we care for the environment. We take a genuine interest in caring for our environment, you know, and caring for each other. So it's a caring psychology. It's not a socialist psychology. It's, not a, it's a caring psychology. How do we create caring? Because when we create caring, we orientate our brains in a certain kind of way. We stimulate certain patterns within the body, the vagus nerve, the frontal cortex. When we create a caring orientation, we create certain kind of relationships with each other. When we create a caring orientation, we actually are able to deal with conflicts in a different way. Mm-hmm. That's not magic. I mean, there's still going to be tribalism. There's still going to be aggressive males who want to have wars and all the rest of it. But we can begin to think about what we need is a, a compassionate orientation to the world that we live in and to the minds that we've inherited from nature. Because unfortunately, as you know, the human mind is can do great things, can be very compassionate, but it's also one of the nastiest minds that have ever existed. I mean, compassion is not naive, you know. If you look at the last 4,000 years with the tortures and the Roman games and the Holocaust and the way women have been treated, I mean, women have had a terrible deal from aggressive males and, and male psychology, um, it's pretty bad. It doesn't read good. And that's because in certain contexts, humans would do terrible things. Right. So we need to understand that. It's no good trying to work with individuals. We need to work with how do we create a context where the context from the schools and the businesses are all focused on how to live to be helpful, not harmful, mm-hmm. how to take responsibility to be aware that actually if I'm not careful, I can be harmful. I don't want to be harmful. So that's a compassionate orientation to living. Uh, getting, say, business schools and ourselves to say, my motto in life is to be helpful, not harmful, because it's very easy for humans to be harmful. So mm-hmm. compassion is not naive. You know, um, Humans are potentially very nasty. Yeah, and it can be cultivated. My my kids go to a school that is doesn't give grades, doesn't have any focus on competition, primarily focused on collaboration, compassion based programming, mindfulness in the programs. And if we get that that orientation of the the working together as as sort of one larger team and thinking it kind of even step stepping out into the global team, like we're facing, you know, global warming as a whole, you know, all of us together, it really can shape not only the outcome, but how we feel in the process. It's probably much more fun and, and feels better in your body than in that competitive type of drive. I think that's absolutely, that's a brilliant point. Absolutely right. So the key thing is, right, this immediate gratification, we've got to deal with that, you know, because yeah. people say, well, yeah, but uh, I want my car, you know, I want to have right. my big car. I want to have right. this. I want to have my holidays. I want. I want. I want. I want. I want. And because we've grown up in this world where capitalism says what you you what you want, we will try and give you. So we expect right. to have it. So learning the first thing, I think, is compassion. Is you cannot have always what you want because some of what you want is harmful. It causes yeah, harm. It it's not because you're a bad person, but just be careful. You know, it's mm-hmm. harmful. I mean, like eating. We, you know, I used to be a meat eater, but I don't eat it now because it's harmful. You know, farming is damaging the ecology and it's a horrible thing. So that's an key, key thing. And then we, if we come together with these basic ideas that it's not just personal gratification when I want it, if I want it, but it is this recognition that you, what you're saying is such an important thing is that actually we can work together to solve these problems and then maybe we'll actually be much better off. And uh, how you shift these two things, you know, it's not about me having what I want when I want it. It's actually about, as you say, how do we work together 
so that we cooperate in a way that addresses the problems that we need to address. Mm -hmm. So that's a very important theme. And it's great to hear that there are schools who are training kids like that. You've had a long career and um, as you enter its its last chapters, what, what are you hoping will be your legacy here on this planet? Well, uh, one of the things that I would always try to help people say is, look, you are a consciousness in a biological form that you did not design and you didn't choose, right? So it's all about how this consciousness, this consciousness of consciousness, it's a particular kind of consciousness that humans have, is just beginning to wake up to these realities, just beginning to wake up to those realities. I mean, you know, it's been there in Buddhism and so on for a thousand years, but we're just beginning to realize that a lot of what's going on inside of us are our biological programs. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'd been kidnapped as a, you know, brought up in a drug-addicted family or I, if I'd been brought up in the Roman Empire, I would have gone to the games and be quite happy to watch it. So we're all biologically created, right? We're just beginning to wake up to this thing. So it's not our fault. This is a really important thing because... When people start to engage with the dark side, they immediately start to, in your terms, act fuse with it. They say, mm-hmm. oh, God, this is about me. And then, you know, I discovered my rage or my sexual, whatever it is. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's not about you. You didn't design any of that shit. Mm-hmm. But the more you understand it, the more you engage with it, the more you realize this is in all of us. And unfortunately, it gets acted out over the last 10,000 years, whatever. So learn, learn about it, learn to take control and learn to choose. Even though I have these potentials, it doesn't make me a bad person, but I'm going to use my consciousness to choose what I'm going to cultivate within my own mind. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. This we get to mindful. choose how we want to train our, our minds. Yes. That's right. This mindful awareness is non-blaming, de-shaming, then shifting to responsibility. Ah, okay. So if I begin to, focus on this aspect of myself so there is this you know violent drug aspect there's this other horrible person the angry self anxious self there are all these selves within me it's not my fault they're there i'm just going to learn how to deal with them but if i create this first if that's the one i'm really going to focus on this will really help me and um so that is the point of the compassionate mind and because when you do that then you start to organize your brain in a certain kind of way you vagus nerve in a certain kind of way and over time we know because of neuroplasticity your brain will change whereas if you're orientated to be competitive and got to win all the time or aggression or anxious all the time then your brain will change that way so not your fault but is your responsibility and it's all you need to do really is to practice if i was at my most compassionate self today how would i be Mm-hmm. If I'm having an argument with somebody, if I just stop, breathe, slow down, it's not my fault. I'm feeling like I want to hit them. It's not my fault. That's not my fault. It's not a good thing to do, though. So as a compassionate person, how would I like to deal with this? Mm-hmm. What is the most courageous position for me to be in? How would I? So I can feel this part of me saying, just shout at them, but tell them off. You know. I can feel that, but I'm not going to let it run my show, and I'm not going to blame myself for it. I'm not going to fight with it. I'm just simply going to follow the trajectory I want to follow without shaming, blaming, criticizing, any of that stuff. And you find it gets quite quite straightforward, really. Yes. It's when we get into that blaming, shaming, and fusing, as you would call it, and all that stuff, that's what causes all the trouble. And then you can't, it's like wading through mud then. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. So compassionate mind training. Yes. Compassionate Thank mind you. training is practice honing into the part of you 
that will help you with the dark side of your own mind. Yeah. And that's exciting that we, that we all have that part of us within us. Yeah. Yeah. It's in there. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that want to start with just a really basic practice of how to do this with yourself on a day-to-day basis. I think some of the, the work from compassion focused therapy is, is very helpful. So we had a, even just our last episode was soothing rhythm, breathing, starting there with getting your body aligned with, with safeness and then moving into some of the work from compassion focused therapy, which is cultivating this compassionate version of yourself, this, this version of yourself that wants to help alleviate suffering in others. Yeah. So some of the work by Russell Colts, I think, is tremendously helpful. Some of your work around, around that is very helpful. If clinicians or individuals want to read more about that, I'll put some links uh, on our website. And then certainly then going to more of the bigger global level of, of living like crazy, which has just been wonderful. Well, there's, um, there's a quote from Maya Angelou that I thought of when I thought of having you on the show that I wanted to share with you because so much shifted for me after having met with you and, 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 and reading your work. And, um, and what she, what she says is that she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, what you did, but they will never forget the way you made them feel. <laughs> isn't, and, that lovely? isn't that lovely? Yeah. And I, and that I think is some of the essence of, of the compassion that you've brought to your work and, and the trickle down of, uh, you know, for all of us that have experienced you, it's how you've changed how we feel. Oh, that's lovely. Our lives. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. And I mean, the point is, I could just sit here and be myself, but is you are getting it out there. That's the point. You're, you're shifting it out into the world. That's a wonderful thing. Yes. Thank you so much. Take care. And you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Www.offtheclockpsych.com.